We've got a call coming in from Nebraska. Caller, tell us what's on your mind. Do you know what it's like to be marginalized, to be both victim and target for a bigoted sheriff's line of questioning? I believe that's why the U.S. has hate crime laws. Do you even know the case that started the lobbying for hate crime laws in the United States in the first place? Uh, I, I can't say I do. What case was that? Let's talk about Brandon Tina. Warning, what you're about to hear is true. At Hookswitch Hotline, we delve deep into shocking true crimes, including murder, violence, kidnapping, mutilation, and sexual assault. Not for children or the squeamish. Some will find this podcast disturbing. Listener discretion is strongly advised. In December of 1972, Brandon Tina was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, to mother Joanne, older sister Tammy, and a father who died in an accident eight months before Brandon was born. Until Brandon was three and Tammy was six, they lived with their grandmother in Lincoln, Nebraska. Then Joanne reclaimed Brandon and Tammy to raise them in a mobile home park. Brandon was seen by others as a timid tomboy when attending St. Mary's Elementary School and later Pius X High School. Brandon claimed to be intersex from a young age and later identified as male as an adolescent. But Mother Joanne kept referring to him as her daughter and misgendered him. He was met with the same resistance at his Catholic high school. He often lashed out against the school dress code as well as the heteronormative Christian views on abstinence and sexuality. During his senior year, things began to change for Brandon. In December 1990, Brandon began skipping school and receiving failing grades because he began to hang out with friends at Holiday Skate Park. At the skate park, Brandon would bind his breasts to pass as a young man and flirt with young women. Classmates were no longer thinking of Brandon as being timid. Instead, they saw Brandon as an outgoing class clown. It seems that his luck had changed until three days before his high school graduation when he was expelled from Pius X High School. That summer, Brandon began work as a gas station attendant. It was an attempt to get money for a trailer of his own so that he could move in with his first real girlfriend, Heather. Joanne did not approve and even sent Tammy to spy on them because she wanted to know if Brandon's relationship with Heather was platonic or sexual. In 1993, legal troubles forced Brandon to move to Falls City, Nebraska, where he lived with Lisa Lambert and was introduced to Lana Tisdale and other interesting characters. Among these associates were ex-convicts John L. Lauter and Tom Nissen. During this time, Brandon began dating Lana. Then, on December 19, 1993, Brandon was arrested for forging checks and he was put in jail for several days. Lana paid off the bail with her father's money, but then quickly learned that Brandon was being held in a female section of the jail and that he was, in fact, transgender. When questioned about his gender, Brandon told Lana that he was pursuing a sex change operation and they maintained a relationship after this. Lana has since disputed whether or not the truth was told to her by Brandon, but she has defended him on several occasions and even told authorities she'd seen him naked and had seen his penis just so that they would leave him alone. By this time, the word was out that this Brandon, who'd convinced everyone that he was a male, was actually a born female. The Fall City Journal had identified him as such in its listing of arrests. Although Lana had glimpsed Brandon's breasts while he was in jail, she was still unsure, so she confronted him. Brandon confessed that he was going through a sex change procedure. Yet earlier, he told her he was a hermaphrodite, so she no longer knew what to believe. Nevertheless, she stuck with him because she liked him. She even defied her mother on the subject. Although, there are some who thought that she was the one who asked the others to find out the real story on Brandon's sexual identity. No one else had said much about it, she insists. 
until the Christmas Eve party. Tom and John had gotten drunk enough to force the issue. They didn't much like what was going on and didn't want Lana dating a person they considered a freak. Grabbing Brandon, they unfastened his pants and pulled them down, demanding that Lana take a look. They wanted her to just admit that Brandon was a girl. According to her account, she shielded her eyes. They insisted, so she looked, but said nothing. Soon John told her that she was wanted back at home, where Brandon was no longer welcome. So when she decided to leave, she couldn't take him along with her. Brandon begged her to come back. He was afraid of Tom, he said, even though he was staying at Tom's invitation. Lana promised that she would. Then she left, and Tom and John decided it was time to teach this boy girl a lesson. Tom pulled down her pants and he put his finger up there and said, oh, this, you know, there's something, you know, there ain't nothing there. There's, she's a girl, you know, and I said, well, I saw something. You know, I looked at Brandon and I said, what was it I saw? You know, just playing it off. And it in a drunken state, Tom followed Brandon into the bathroom and punched him hard in the stomach. According to Brandon, Tom also kicked him several times when he was down. Then Tom and John hustled Brandon into a car and drove out into the cold night. They found a secluded spot near a school, and Tom forced Brandon into the car's back seat and insisted that he remove his pants. Then Tom raped Brandon, both anally and vaginally, to prove to him that he was a girl. I mean, something I wanted to say about that specifically is, you know, so I think there are a number of categories of people who don't want, um, uh, don't want touch on their genitals, although they're sexual people. Um, or don't want to touch on some of their genitals, or sometimes, and some uh, some trans folks um, uh, have that experience, and some cis folks have that experience, and you know, and also it can change through people's lives. But people have that experience for different reasons. After that, John had his turn. Although he later said that he couldn't complete the act and had ejaculated into a condom. Her biggest fear was, right. was to be touched by a man to possibly be raped by a man because she was a man. For good measure, Tom hit and kicked Brandon again. By the time Brandon stumbled back to find Lana, his lip was bruised and bleeding. His body was sore from all of the beating and he was in a state of profound shock. Although it was cold out, he wore no coat, no shoes, and even worse, the thing he'd most feared had just happened to him. John and Tom had warned Brandon to tell no one, but Lana urged him to report the rape an assault to the authorities. She had no idea of the humiliation that this would bring to Brandon or the degree of retaliation. During a Christmas Eve party, Neeson and Lauder grabbed Brandon and forced him to remove his pants, proving to Tisdale that Tina had a vulva. Tisdale looked only when forced to and said nothing. Lauder and Neeson later assaulted Brandon and forced him into a car. They drove to a Hormel meatpacking plant in Richardson County where they assaulted and gang-raped him. They then returned to Neeson's home, where Brandon was ordered to take a shower. Brandon escaped from Neeson's bathroom by climbing out of a window and went to Tisdale's house. Brandon was convinced by Tisdale to file a police report, though Neeson and Lauder had warned Brandon not to tell the police about the gang rape or they would, quote, silence him permanently, end quote. Brandon also went to the emergency room, where a standard rape kit was assembled, but later lost. Hookswitch Hotline has obtained audio of Sheriff Charles Law questioning Brandon about the rape. He seems especially interested in Brandon's transgender status, to the point that Brandon found his questions rude and unnecessary, and refused to answer further. Tom, how's your arms? Which way was he standing? 
beside you, behind you, or what? How'd he hold you? Then he took a combat or a shot under your pants, right? He pulled your pants down how far? Past your knees. How far did he pull your underpants down? What did you have in your underpants? Nothing in your underpants? You didn't have a sock. Do you run around once in a while with a sock and your pants make you look like a boy? Yeah. Alright, so after you pulled your pants down, I seen you as a girl, what did he do? Did he ponder you any? He didn't ponder you any, huh? Didn't that kind of amaze you? After he pulled your pants down, you been wanting to take you to bed and you told him no, that you was a boy and he couldn't do that? Doesn't that kind of get your attention somehow that he would have put his hands in your pants and play with you a little bit? Huh? I can't believe that if he pulled your pants down and you're a female that he didn't stick his hand in you. Or your finger in you. I can't believe he didn't. Tom looked at me and he goes, John, I need to talk to you. It's okay, I'm walking to the bathroom. Walk to the bathroom and John turned around and held the door and Tom hit me and I found the tub. The back of you again. I'm falling forward, kicking me on the side, stuck in my back. And he picked me up my coat, carried me out to the car. Oh my god, the back seat, this one, this one, this one, this That's the one. I did that with him, I did quit. Tom told me, you need to see me, you make it hard. And he goes, right, he said, Daddy he said, you need to beat the shit out of me, and have it happen anyway. Have what happen? So when they got ready to pull you, how was you positioned in the back seat? On my back. You was on your back. And what did he try to start in the first half? I was down. He tried seeing your head down. And you say you never had sex before, is that correct? Right. And which one tried doing this first? Tom. Did Tom couldn't get it in you? Huh? He said he couldn't get you. He couldn't get it in. Well, I know it hurts. I can not tell the difference. Where are you going? The person was Tom. Is that fair? Yes, sir. Then Tom got out and what did he do? Right, and then what happened? John got the back seat. And then when John got the back seat, what did he do? He didn't do anything to Tom. All right. After he got his pants down, he got a spread of you, or had you spread out, he got a spread of you then. Then what happened? Well, how did, let's back up here for a second. First of all, you didn't say anything about him getting it up. Did he have a heart on when he got back there, or what? I don't know. I didn't look. He didn't look. Did he take a little time working it up, or what? Did you work it up for him? No, I didn't. You didn't work it up for him? No. Then do you think he had it worked up on his own or what? I guess so, I don't know. And you've never had any sex before? No. How old are you? And if you're 21, you think you'd have, you'd have trouble getting the answer?
Nissen and Lauder found out about this report, and they began to search for Brandon. They didn't find him, and three days later, the police questioned them. Sheriff Law declined to have them arrested because, quote, what kind of a person was she? The first few times we arrested her, she was putting herself off as a guy, end quote. At around 1 a.m. on December 31, 1993, Nissen and Lauder drove to Lambert's house and broke in. They found Lambert in bed and demanded to know where Brandon was. Lambert refused to tell them. Nissen searched and found Brandon under the bed. The men asked Lambert if there was anyone else in the house, and she replied that Philip Devine, who at the time was dating Tisdall's sister, was staying with her. They then shot and killed Devine, Lambert, and Brandon in front of Lambert's toddler. I'm being in prison, both of them realizing they were going back, and rape carries 50 years, both of them being ex-felons. They were gonna get some time out of that. And they figured, you know, just, you know, if we can shut her up, you know, if we can take care of the one that's pressing charges, we ain't going back. So that ex that's exactly why they had to do that, you know, I can see that. Nissen later testified in court that he'd noticed that Brandon was twitching and asked Lauder for a knife, with which Nissen then stabbed Brandon in the chest to ensure that he was dead. Nissen and Lauder then left. Marvin Thomas Neeson was tried first in February 1995. His attorney's principal problem was Tom himself. Eager for publicity, Thomas had given an interview to Playboy magazine in which he'd confessed to both the rape and his part in helping to kill Brandon. So the prosecutor lost no time in adding that journalist to his list of witnesses because this was an even greater find than the jailhouse snitch to whom Thomas had also confessed. Thomas was a two-bit blabbermouth. 
Even so, the jury had trouble finding him guilty of first-degree murder and all the deaths. They deliberated for 18 hours and finally convicted him on March 3rd of first-degree murder and the death of Brandon Tina, but second-degree murder and the deaths of Lambert and Devine. His sentence was delayed until after John Lauder's trial, which meant he could still face the death penalty. Marvin Thomas Neeson did some quick thinking. John Lauder's trial began on Monday, May 15th, 1995. The 10 women and two men serving on the jury were brought in from Omaha and sequestered in Falls City. Prosecutor James Elworth told jurors that there was no doubt that Lauder had been involved, and in part it was because he feared that Brandon Tina would testify against him and send him to prison for rape. Police testified that on the night following the discovery of the murders, they found a gun and knife inside a pair of gloves in the Nemaha River, south of Falls City. The gun proved to be the one involved in the crimes. The knife's sheath bore Lauder's name, and blood on the blade proved to be the same type as Brandon's. There was psychiatric testimony to the effect that Lauder was mentally impaired and might not have been able to judge right from wrong. Yet even the psychiatrist conceded that tossing the murder weapon into the river indicated he certainly knew that what he had done was against the law. John's former girlfriend, Rhonda McKenzie, also testified that he had threatened to kill Brandon for duping them fully a week before the the murders occurred. Then, on the night of the murders, he woke her at 2.30 a.m. and asked her to give him an alibi. At 3.30 a.m., Tom had done the same with his wife. Then, at the last minute, Tom Neeson cut a deal with the state to save his life. He took the stand. For his truthful account, nothing he said would be used against him and he would not face the death penalty. Defense attorney Mike Fabian attempted to prevent the admission of his testimony, but the judge allowed it. Tom stated quite clearly that he and John Lauder had committed these murders together. Not only that, they'd plotted for six days to kill Brandon, starting the day after they'd assaulted him. On December 26, 1993, they went to Brandon's home in Lincoln, Nebraska looking for him. The plan was to lure him to an isolated spot and then chop off his head and hands. When their quest went sour, they sat around drinking and obsessing about what could be done. It had been Lauder's contention, according to to Tom that a dead witness could not testify and that was the only way to save themselves. Neeson admitted to stabbing Brandon but said that Lauder had done all of the shooting. Neeson had stabbed Brandon after the first shot because he thought Brandon was still alive. She was twitching, he said. To everyone's surprise, John Lauder, who'd refused to say anything up to that point except that he was innocent, wanted to testify in his own defense. His attorney advised against it but he insisted. On the stand, he denied every aspect of Tom Neeson's account, but was soon caught in a lie. Then, when he contradicted the testimonies of upstanding, credible citizens, he made things look even worse for himself. By the end, everything he said was in doubt. The jury took only five hours to reach a decision. On Thursday, May 25th, 1995, John Lauder was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder, three counts of using a deadly weapon, and one count of burglary. The prosecutor sought the death penalty, which was automatically subject to appeal. Joanne Brandon went after Charles Lowe, the cop who had failed to arrest Lauder and Neeson for rape. She sued him in Richardson County in the wrongful death of her child. 
charging that his negligence and mishandling of the case had resulted in Brandon's murder. He had actively prevented his deputies from making an arrest. Lowe said that he was simply trying to avoid jumping the gun and compromising the case. A lower court dismissed the suit, but the Nebraska Supreme Court reinstated it because Lowe had actually informed the perpetrators of the complaint and then had failed to protect the victim. If the allegations were true, the justice said, Lowe laid an essential link in the chain that led to the victim's death. While the lower court conceded, they only gave a part of the monetary award, since they calculated the county to be only 15% at fault. That amounted to just over $17,000. However, the Nebraska Supreme Court had ruled that Lowe was negligent in his duty to protect Brandon Tina. In addition, his tone in the tape-recorded interview with Brandon was demeaning, accusatory, and intimidating. Sheriff Law was also criticized after the murder for his attitude toward Brandon. At one point, Law referred to Brandon as it. After the case was over, former Sheriff Law served as commissioner of Richardson County and later as part of his community's council before retiring as a school bus driver. He has refused to this day to speak about his actions in the case and swore at one reporter who contacted him for a story on the murder's 20th anniversary. They ordered the lower court to increase its damage award to Joanne Brandon to the original amount. Neeson appealed his case to the Supreme Court, and it was turned down. Brandon, an interactive web artwork created in 1998 by Shuli Chang, was named for Brandon Tina. The artwork was commissioned by the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. Much of the site's content relates to Brandon's story. In 1999, a biographical film on the Brandon Tina case was made by director Kimberly Pierce. Hilary Swank starred as Brandon Tina and Chloe Sevigny as Lana Tisdale. Both actors were Oscar-nominated for their performances, and Swank won an Academy Award. Brandon's mother, Joanne, was outraged by the film's portrayal of Brandon. In early 2000, Joanne, who could not work because of severe asthma, still owed money for her son's funeral. She was irritated that a fund set up to pay for the funeral received meager contributions while others, such as the filmmakers, profited from Brandon's death. I'm really sick and tired of people making money off my child, Joanne said in an Associated Press article. I don't understand how you can put three weeks of somebody's life up on a film and win an award for it. Joanne was also offended by Hilary Swank's acceptance speech because Swank thanked Brandon and referred to him with masculine he, him, his pronouns. Joanne said, she should not stand up there and thank my child. I get tired of people taking credit for what they don't know. Later, Joanne would say this about the film in reference to gay and transgender advocates. It gave them a platform to voice their opinions, and I'm glad of that. There were a lot of people who didn't understand what it was she was going through. We've come a long way. Before the film's release, Lana Tisdale sued the producers for unauthorized use of her name and likeness. Lana claimed the film falsely portrayed her having a continued relationship with Brandon after discovering he was transgender, and her lawsuit against the film's distributor was settled for an undisclosed sum. Brandon's story was brought to national attention when Donna Minkowitz wrote her seminal piece for The Village Voice. Boys Don't Cry director Kimberly Pierce said the piece was an inspiration for the film. In 2018, Donna Minkowitz wrote a piece for The Village Voice in which she expressed her regret for not understanding transgender people when she wrote the original report. She now calls the report the most insensitive and inaccurate piece of journalism she's ever written. 
For years, Donna has wanted to apologize for what she now recognizes as anti-trans framing. She said that at the time, although cis queer herself, she was extremely trans ignorant. The whole discussion of my article, the criticism of my article um, from trans activists at the time, um, and uh, and from uh, from one Stone Butch activist as well, um, was harder to hear because I thought of um, I thought of the people who were critiquing me as my allies, and I thought I thought you know um, yes I'm. I'm uh, I'm I'm one of you. You know what do you mean? I what do you mean? I don't know everything there is to know about this. I mean, one of the one of the issues is that I um, I read Brandon as a um, as a cis lesbian um, who uh, who I thought suffered from internalized homophobia, um, and I think I and uh, a lot of uh, other lesbians wanted to. Uh, wanted to reclaim Brandon's story as this exciting, like, wow, like, what if I go now and um, what if I go right now and live as a man, despite the fact that I'm not trans? What if I date woman, women and be a straight man? And um, what would that be like in kind of a sense of adventure? Um, but I realized uh, finally that that was not who Brandon was. Joanne was asked about how Brandon's murder affects her to this day, and she said, I wonder about how my life would be different if she was still here with me. She would be such a joy to have around. She was always such a happy kid. I imagine her being a happy adult. And if being happy meant Tina living as a man, I would be fine with that. 2021 was the deadliest year for transgender and gender non-conforming people in the U.S. since the human rights campaign started recording fatal violence in 2013. Reports make it clear that the full number of fatalities is likely higher because deaths of trans and gender non-conforming people are often underreported. At least 24 of those recorded in the HRC's report were initially misgendered by the media or police. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hook Switch Hotline. Please subscribe and come back next week where we'll delve deep into more graphic true crimes. With every crime, someone somewhere has more information. That someone could be you. Email us at hookswitchhotline at gmail.com and call or text at 415-448-7263.